0: about an event that every news organization is covering. It's a challenge for us, and doubly so for me, because Jim is away this week. I'm hosting on my own. We release this podcast to mark the one-year anniversary of the wider war in Ukraine, and it's about the values we share in common with Ukrainians. Human rights, free expression, the rule of law, and standing up to tyranny a conversation with Jacob Mechengama.
1: You can't have democracy and freedom if you're not also willing to defend your national sovereignty against an armed invasion. If the democracies of the West, of the European Union, are not sufficiently strong to counter the very crude Russian propaganda, then, you know, they rest on clay feet. If you don't trust the very people in whose name you ultimately rule, then, you know, what, what, what's democracy worth?
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? You could say that this was the week that Joe Biden became the first Cold War president since Ronald Reagan. Vladimir Putin announced that he was pulling back from the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement with the U.S. Russia's ties with China now appear to be getting stronger as both Xi and Putin step up their rhetoric against the U.S. and its allies. President Biden went to Kiev and then to Warsaw. He spoke in very blunt terms a few days ago about what's at stake. Over the past year, the United States has come together with our allies and partners in an extraordinary coalition to stand against Russian aggression. But the work in front of us is not just what we're against. It's about what we're for. And what we're for, he said, is freedom and democracy. There is no sweeter word than freedom. There is no nobler goal than freedom. There's no higher aspiration than freedom. Americans know that and you know it. And all that we do now must be done so our children and grandchildren will know it as well. Freedom. President Biden speaking in Warsaw. So let's talk about the values involved in this widening conflict Our guest is Jacob Michengama, CEO of the European think tank Justitia. He's written and commented extensively on free speech and human rights. Jacob's most recent book is Free Speech, a History from Socrates to Social Media. He joined us from Copenhagen, Denmark, and I spoke with Jacob just a few days ago. Are you surprised by the level of support, the rallying, that there has been behind the Ukrainian cause over the past year.
1: I'm very um, heartened by it because I think it's a, it's a good antidote to this decay of the West and uh, uh, complacency of democracy's narrative that has that has been driving some of the authoritarian backlash against democracy, even if a lot of pressure has been needed to really rally democracies behind Ukraine, you know, with more than words, I think it is heartening. And and it seems to me that even a year in, there still seems to be solid support in many countries for the Ukrainian cause and for continuing to supply Ukrainians
0: with the means to, to defend themselves and hopefully,
1: decisively
0: turn the tide. The war launched by Vladimir Putin is not only an assault on Ukraine, but an attack against values represented by its democracy. What values are at stake in this struggle?
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I should uh, say that I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Russian or Ukrainian affairs. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an expert on, on free speech. But I think it's true that for a very long time, Putin and his regime has tried to do everything in its power to frustrate efforts of liberal democracies, try to depict them as weak, indecisive, decaying, corrupt. And perhaps he had fooled himself into thinking that this was actually true, uh, and therefore Ukraine was ripe for the taking. It was anathema for Putin to see a neighbor that oriented itself more towards the West Rather than uh, than Moscow, Zelensky, who came in, who uh, as a new president was one who who very much came in on a on a more pro Western ticket, and and that was that was certainly not something that Putin wanted to uh, to see. But I think it's important to say that even though Ukraine uh, was a functioning democracy, it's it's also important not to paint it in rose here light. It was a democracy, but it was one with huge problems in terms of corruption, rule of law, and and press freedoms. I mean, it, I think in 2021, it, it ranked 97th of, of countries in the world when it comes to press freedom. Zelensky was someone who at least had an ambition of making it a more stable, Western-style democracy.
0: Many supporters of Ukraine say that it's fighting for us in this war, what do they mean? Are they right?
1: Well, yes and no. You know, I'm I'm sitting in in Denmark, which is situated not that far from from Russia, where the Danish island of Bornholm was actually occupied even after the end of World War II by by Russian troops and and lots of uh, Russian activity there. I don't think that Putin would have <laughs> moved into. Uh, to, to, to Denmark, but I, I can certainly see why the Baltic states, Poland, other, other, other countries that have actually lived under the yoke of, of Russian imperialism, uh, Russian occupation, would see that Ukraine is, it's essential to stop the Russian ambitions there, because otherwise, uh, if they're not being met with a strong response, Putin is going to be emboldened and get more and more ambitious on expanding the russian so-called of influence and and you know I, I doubt that he would have invaded poland but then there are other measures in which you can try to undermine uh, democracies
0: that's an argument for national security for defense But do you think that one reason why there's been such an incredibly strong response by the West and and not just European nations that either share a border with Russia or are uh, fairly close is because of something more than just defense?
1: Yeah. You see the statements from, for instance, the leaders of the Baltic states. I think it's clear they have no wish of becoming part of a Russian uh, sphere of influence where they basically have to toe the line of, of Moscow, you know, they have enjoyed self-determination uh, now for for decades. And uh, a country like Estonia has built an incredibly successful, open, exemplary, in many ways, democracy. And quite clearly, a vast majority of, of the population of Estonia, even though it has a, a, a sizable Russian minority, do not want to be gobbled up again, whether de facto uh, or not. And and of course, a number of Central and Eastern European countries have lived under Russian uh, dominance and, and do not want to, to, to do
0: so again. Has the war in Ukraine focused greater urgency on protecting democracy and defending the things that, that you work for, which is the protection of human rights and free speech?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that you can't have democracy and freedom if you're not also willing to defend your national sovereignty against an armed invasion. So in that sense, these principles and fundamental values do require, and that is maybe something that we've forgotten, especially in Europe, a willingness to defend against invasion. Uh, On the other hand, I don't know that the response has been to double down on democratic freedoms. For instance, the European Union has banned uh, Russian propaganda, uh, which is a restriction on free speech. So it's basically banned media outlets arguing that Russian propaganda undermines democracy. I tend to, to take the view that this is a dangerous development. If the democracies of the West, of the European Union, are not sufficiently strong to counter the very crude Russian propaganda, then, you know, they rest on clay feet. If you don't trust the very people in whose name you ultimately rule, then, you know, what, what what's democracy worth? I think that we can both provide arms to Ukraine so that Ukrainians can fight and hopefully win. We can also fight Russian propaganda and election interference
0: But we've seen many examples in America and elsewhere where governments, companies, and college administrators want to ban uncomfortable ideas. What about Russian propaganda and misinformation?
1: Why would you want to ban Russian propaganda? I think it's incredibly valuable for people to be able to look into the information sphere that is dominating Russia pro-regime propaganda which is you know sometimes reaches genocidal dimensions, threatens nuclear war, paints these grotesque distorted pictures of, of what's going on. You know, when you contrast that with a more diverse diet of information, you can actually see how bizarre Russian propaganda is. Another thing is that, you know, open source intelligence through social media allows us to actually very often debunk Russian propaganda in real time.
0: What about hate speech?
1: Yeah, well, uh, one of the eternal questions is how do you define hate speech? First of all, I, I will acknowledge that free speech can cause harms, real life harms, whether it's propaganda or, or, or hate speech. But I tend to think that the benefits of free speech and access to information outweighs the the harms one of the reasons that people out of good intentions want to ban hate speech is to protect minorities whereas historically minorities have been relying on the ability to speak out in public to advocate for equality to petition leaders whereas censorship and suppression has always been the supremacist weapon against minorities and sort of how majoritarian intolerance of minorities has been manifested.
0: I know you've quoted Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave in his earlier life. He talked about the importance of free speech for minorities.
1: Yes, he says that the the right of speech is a very precious one, especially for the oppressed. And he also had this vision of free speech as a universal human right that did not depend on the size of your wallet or, or the color of your skin. I think that's an incredibly important universalist vision of of human rights. And of course, the civil rights movement in the United States relied heavily on free speech, expanded the First Amendment enormously through um, crucial battles uh, won before the Supreme Court. Um, And I think it's true that every marginalized, oppressed group that has gained uh, acceptance, tolerance, and equality has their most important weapon has always been the public sphere appealing to their fellow citizens. How can you in the United States, how can you have a declaration of independence? That that claims that that all um, men are created equal and then Madison and Jefferson go back to their plantations and are being fanned by enslaved Africans. That is grotesque and absurd. People like Frederick Douglass and others would use free speech to to great effect. And if you went to southern states in the 1830s, they would ban, uh, with draconian punishments, abolitionist speech. Um, so, so I think that's a good example of, of how free speech tends to help minorities.
0: In recent years, technology has changed most aspects of our daily lives with the rise of social media and the very rapid spread of lies, hate speech, and disinformation. Some worry that, that free speech is being weaponized against democracy itself. So what's the best way to respond to that?
1: It's certainly true that at least um, hate speech and disinformation can be, can be amplified and becomes more visible when most people have an unmediated or a supposedly unmediated access to uh, speak their, their mind. Though I think it's also true to, and important to stress that when you actually look at empirical studies, they tend to show that the share of hate speech and misinformation is very often vastly exaggerated uh, by traditional media and, and, and politicians. So the fact that in absolute numbers there's a lot does not necessarily mean that the vast majority of Americans, for instance, uh, share or encounter uh, misinformation and disinformation. Very often it will be those, the most partisan people, those who are sort of the most politically uh, tribal, who will uh, share uh, and consume most of of, uh, misinformation and disinformation.
0: But it's not only social media. In the US, unlike most other democracies, we have openly partisan cable news channels as well as talk radio
1: trust in the government trust in in the media and institution seems to be in in decline in the u.s and that predates uh, social media we're seeing now some very interesting information about central journalists and actors at fox news what they knew but the, the election that they realized that, that the, the narrative, the Trump's narrative that, it, that the election was stolen was a brazen lie, but they didn't want to confront their viewers with it and regretted that, that, that Fox uh, actually uh, called the election in, in, in favor of Biden. That, I think, is an extremely unhealthy development. But I think it's also important to realize that disinformation and misinformation um, has a long history uh, and that, you know, you can find many examples of Washington Post, New York Times and others who, in the age of analog, were duped into spreading nefarious uh, false information. So this is not a new phenomenon.
0: This is How Do We Fix It. Our conversation is with Jacob Mitch, and Gamma. Jim is away this week. I'm Richard Davies. By the way, a couple of reminders to listeners. Uh, find our newsletter at HowDoWeFixIt.me. We've published uh, several very recent editions. And you can also send us an email with your ideas and suggestions for new shows. Our eighth anniversary of How Do We Fix It is coming up in the spring. We are always looking for ways to be better, and you can really help us. So suggestions always welcome. We've been talking with Jacob Mitch, and Gama about the rapidly changing media landscape. Jacob says Russian propaganda is nothing new and may have actually had a more decisive impact on the West during the Cold War, before the Internet and now over the past few years with the growth of social media.
1: I think we're in the early stages. And and I think maybe we're also a bit more vulnerable, you know, in the same way that when the printing press came out, people would maybe be, oh, this is printed, this is a pamphlet, it must be true. There's a huge um, effort that we have to ensure a higher degree of resilience amongst consumers of, of social media and, 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 and the digital sphere. So I, I like this concept, for instance, of pre-bunking rather than debunking. So we have to ensure that younger generations are much better equipped at recognizing patterns and and saying, you know, the same way that if you today were to receive an email from a supposed Nigerian millionaire, you would say, that's probably uh, someone trying to defraud me. But if it had been 10 or 15 years ago, we might have been more likely to open that email. We were not accustomed to the systematic attempts trying to defraud you online. Right now, we're trying to make sense of the digital age uh, according to mental modes that were sort of developed in the analog age. And, and I think it will take time. Younger generations will, will hopefully be more resilient than, than we are because, just because they were brought up with it.
0: How important is trust to all this, to defending democracy
1: no, I think that's that's absolutely crucial. So, in Denmark, uh, where I uh, am right now, has a very high degree of trust, and I think it would be almost impossible for someone to to sow the kind of distrust and polarization that that you see in the U.S. in in this country, where it, it would be very difficult to imagine a situation, for instance, where a substantial minority believed that it was a stolen, rigged election, even though all the supposedly evidence uh, shown for that was transparently bogus. And And I think that shows you not, that, that it's not so much the information, it's about trust and polarization. So if there's low degree of trust, if there's a high degree of polarization, you're likely to dismiss even very strong evidence that goes against your 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 priors and accept shoddy evidence that you would not under other circumstances dismiss out of hand.
0: Your most recent book published last year is a history of free speech. Some claim that free speech really was largely the product of the Enlightenment and is a Western European concept in its origins. Is that true?
1: Oh no! I would say that free speech originates all the way back to the uh, ancient Athenian democracy. So that's that's 2,500 years. It is true that the West plays an uh, an outsized role in it, but there are crucial developments in the history of free speech going back to medieval Islam, for instance, in where the most daring free thinkers uh, were 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 Muslim uh, thinkers, some of them who even rejected prophecy and, and and holy books, and had sort of a very rationalist approach. You had in in, in India, someone like Gandhi, much later on, played an important role. Um, when you come to, you know, apartheid, South Africa, free speech played a crucial role in dismantling it. Uh, so these West non-Western developments played a part. You could also take the Haitian revolution, which overthrew slavery, where texts were were sort of transmitted to to Haiti. Some of them talking about freedom and, and free speech that uh, helped inspire the Haitian revolution. It would be wrong to, to, to view free speech as an enlightenment value, or at least one that originated in, in the enlightenment. It would also be wrong to see free speech as an exclusively Western value.
0: You've written about a free speech recession. There are many examples of democratic backsliding from from Hungary to Nicaragua, Iran to India, are human rights, the rule of law and free speech in any way in retreat? Or have we now, especially in the last year, started to push back?
1: You could argue that we're living in a golden age just because we're still sort of enjoying the fruits of what was a an unprecedented third wave of democratization in from that lasted from the 70s until the the, the start of the, of the 21st century, and coupled with communications technology and, of course, the internet, which made the practical exercise of free speech reach unprecedented proportions. But it is also true that for more than a decade, the number of liberal democracies, at least, have been in decline. Even with among the remaining liberal democracies, they have tended to adopt more speech-restrictive laws but this is, again, something that we've seen before. So so these things can be cyclical uh, and, and it can be tempting to do, you know, when you feel threatened, when you feel that your your values, your institutions, your society is being threatened, free speech can seem like a very abstract theoretical value that should be curtailed to protect against these threats. But that is until you've suddenly given up free speech and, and you know, you don't, rulers that you didn't imagine would rule come into power, and then they can use those restrictions against you. And then suddenly the absence of free speech becomes very concrete. And that is unfortunately something that we've seen many times throughout history.
0: Imagine you're standing in front of a group of young students, some of whom at least are skeptical about democracy, free speech, and the need to protect unpopular forms of speech. What basic arguments do you make? Depending
1: on, on, on where you were in the world, but if I was in the US, I, I will, on April 1st, I will, I'll, I'll be moving to, to Nashville, Tennessee um, to, to take up a position at Vanderbilt uh, University And uh, so if I was to be confronted with the students there, and some of them might say, well, we need to restrict free speech in order to ensure racial justice. We're, after all, living in the South with a hideous legacy of institutionalized racism, both in terms of slavery and Jim Crow. But then I would ask them to go back and see, you know, what happened to members of the civil rights movement who were protesting in the 50s, for instance. They were being shut down by violent police forces uh, and, and used all, all kinds of laws, some of them explicitly racist censorship in nature, others more sort of formally neutral, but clearly understood to be used in a racist way. And, you know, I would also say... All the progress that has been made. So, you know, if you go back to 1958, 4% of Americans were acceptant of interracial marriage. Today, it's plus 90%. None of that happened because people were thrown to jail because of their racist views. So, to a very large extent, it has been the exercise of the First Amendment that has helped change attitudes. And you could say the same with when it comes to same sex marriage. Very compelling arguments have been made in favor of same-sex marriage. That has made it difficult uh, for, for most people to accept that you should discriminate and that I think is a testament to the value of free expression. It's not a coincidence if you go to Russia or Turkey, various minorities and also the LGBT community will be censored. You know, you can't stage a, a pride parade in, in Moscow or, or Istanbul whereas this is constitutionally protected in the United States.
0: Jacob mentioned Gama on How Do We Fix It, speaking with us during a momentous week for global politics. Now, usually after our interview, Jim and I leave you with a recommendation. And uh, as he's away, I'm just gonna say that I've been rediscovering the joys of going to the movies again, Uh, something that was interrupted during COVID. Among my favorite flicks, In the past few weeks, everything, everywhere, all at once, which has a surprisingly strong and tender ending. The British film Living and the Irish movie The Banshees of Inishiran all are well worth seeing on a big screen in a darkened room with some popcorn and your phone switched off or left at home. I'm Richard Davies. Thanks for listening.